Thank you so much for tuning in to the Attack Early Show. My name is Sam Moses. I'm with my good friend Matt Garber. And today we are going to talk about the most common things we fix in people's mixes. And this is not at all a, uh, a negative episode on mixers. We love our mix engineers. We like partnering with our mix engineers. But we get a lot of feedback when we master where mix engineers are very curious of, you know, and this is great. They want to know, how could I improve? Or maybe they bring things to the table for mastering that we go, actually, we can't fix that. Uh, So this episode is all about around 10 things that have come up hundreds of times over the last uh, eight years of me mastering. And Matt actually has his own list as well. And coincidentally, coincidentally, uh, we're pretty similar. Yeah, we did not see each other's lists, and our lists were almost like identical. So clearly, we've got some issues that happen over and over again. And I almost told Matt it's almost like myths that mixers believe they should be doing or not doing in their mixes Mm -hmm. in preparation for mastering. And that maybe is the better idea for this whole episode topic. But I'm excited about it because I know it's going to help mixers get better mixes, which will give us the ability to give them a better master, which will give their client a better end product, which makes everyone sound better, and everybody makes more money that way. So Matt, are you ready to unpack it? I'm ready to unpack it. You didn't do the you didn't do the sound. Here it comes. <laughs> Did it. Yep. Totally ruined that. Now I know it's coming from Perfect. Your mouth. <laughs> so uh, let's do it. Let's do it. So yeah, I I think a, a cool way to start this off and in these lists did did you write yours in any particular order or you just wrote 10? Uh I didn't write them in order other than the first one. So the first one to me is an ongoing issue and probably the most talked about thing people ask me about. I would say the same for number one for me as well. Yeah. So outside of that, there's no order. So this isn't like a late night show top 10? <laughs> no. It's just a, okay. uh, a, a grouping of thoughts. We're not counting down? No. We could, but there's really no... Uh, for me, there's no level of importance here. It's all important, all ten. Yeah, I get it. Okay, cool. Um, so why don't you uh, why don't you say yours? And it's interesting how we both approached this one. Yeah, and how like it's about the same topic, but it is different to a degree. Right. You want to get into your number one? Oh yeah, so much anticipation. I feel like coming into this number one. <clears throat> Drum roll. <laughs> okay, my number one thing that I feel like I notice in mixes that I am constantly fixing is there is not enough low end in people's mixes. And when I ask, when I deliver a, a master back, one of the main things people usually tell me is. The low end sounds great, sounds so huge, sounds super punchy and clean. And people ask me, how did you do that? And my first answer is usually, I added low end sub in information. (laughs) There's literally 2 dB more going on because your song didn't have enough low end or it didn't have any. Hmm. And for me, the conversations I've had with my mixers is, they're usually too scared to add too much to make it too woofy or thumpy is the words that people say, or rumbly. And so they, uh, they use very little low Im- information <coughs> when they're mixing. And the other side of it is to some of the guys that have subs and are mixing with bigger monitors or subs their room is not treated, so the low-end builds up so much to where they think they have a lot of low-end, but they still don't. So when mm-hmm. they get my master's back, sometimes they'll be like, oh my gosh, low-end's so loud, it's so huge. I'm like, well, you know it's your room, so take yeah. it out of your room to the car, and they're like, oh, it's perfect everywhere else, you know, but it sounds a little overbearing in my room. So that helps people immediately, and mixers kind of know, learn their room better, but also how to, you know, they could acoustically treat their room better to improve that low-end. But my main um, thought to them when we approach low end is 
it is way easier for me to shelf your low end if it's too much or cut something. It's way easier to do that in a very tasty way as opposed to trying to always recreate low end warmth when it literally doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Uh, I found it to be way more difficult to make a thin mix sound warm than a really round mix sound more balanced and bright. Um, I prefer... I prefer mixes to be more round and low and heavy because I find that uh, tube shelving with EQ on the outboard on Massive Passive now is like so yummy that um, it's just really easy to make anything that's too dark bright, but it's really hard a lot of the times to make stuff that's super thin and lacking body Mm -hmm. to have density again. So that's just my approach, but that would be my number one thing constantly that I am fixing, tweaking, adjusting, uh, and making sure we have a super solid foundation before I usually do anything else at the mastering stage. So that's mine. Matt? Yeah, and my my number one is along the same lines, uh, except it is kind of the opposite, that I have too much low end, but it's not necessarily enough of the good stuff. Yeah. So I'm getting something that's kind of floppy or tubby or woofy. I, I, I think that one of those uh, descriptors will ring home with people and they'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and that, I believe, is from not being able to accurately reference what you're hearing. Either that or it is just kind of like a bad capture mm-hmm. um, of whatever you are having in that low end. Um, but I mean, if it's electronic to a degree, it's like I don't know. I could be completely wrong, but like, is, is that like com- like almost like inexcusable to have that like <laughs> as a capture? I mean, if it's and electronic then it's just music, mixed, it's probably and then it's just mixed based. because if it's like if it's electronic and it's like doing samples and stuff like that, yeah. I don't really see like someone actively pursuing a tubby, woofy, floppy low end. <laughs> And it's like at at some point it, it has to do it with an inaccuracy in how you're referencing it. Yeah. And um, I'm not saying that every room needs to go out and have a sub, but I am pro subwoofer. I know Sam before he got his barefoots was pro subwoofer. Absolutely. And now, I mean, I listened to your room a couple weeks ago, and I was like, "Do you have a sub in here?" And you're like, "No." And I was like, "It sounds like you have a sub in here." <laughs> so, but I mean, that's just the nature of the barefoots and and how they go about their deal um but in general i mean if you're doing a lot of uh low end and then sub low end and uh i mean you're having to crank up your monitors in order to really get that that uh that cone moving um you 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 kind of have to ask at some point like are you actually referencing it accurately if you're having to having to do that i mean my sub in mine is in my room is stupid quiet yeah but it's like just enough to where like i mean i mean it's measured to the room i mean it self calibrates itself to my speakers and like phase aligns itself and i mean it's awesome so it's like i know what i'm hearing is like what i'm supposed to hear like at least what that company says that it should sound like um so and what I'm hearing sometimes it's like if it's too floppy or woofy or tubby it's like it's actually kind of difficult to like resurrect that yeah. without like going nuts like you can't just boost something and you can't just like cut in other places it's like you got to I don't know like like do you have a way of treating that specifically Sam of treating like when it's too woofy and stuff Yeah or it's like kind of just like floppy and just kind of flopping around to me when low end is too floppy it's i find that by filtering it um Mm -hmm. up all the way up to it just depends like i'll usually do a filter on the massive passive or in the box depending on how specific i want the uh slope to be but i'll sometimes go all the way up to like 46 like yeah. really roll roll it off and make it tight, um, or I'll do a shelf on everything like up to sixty five or something like a few dB. Yeah, that is my my two things. I've also found 
So this is something that I love about the L1 and L2 plugin is that it is a bright in-your-face plugin. And to me, if something has too much low-end tubby going on it, I will put an L2 on it and take like 2 dB off and the low end just kind of vanishes in a nice mm-hmm. way <laughs> if it's too thick, um, which is part of, you know, if you push the L1 or L2 too hard, it'll, uh, you know, make your mix kind of just become this bright, loud, thin thing. But yeah. that's usually my approach, either either a, a filter at the low end or a shelf, and that seems to take care of most of it. If it's woofy or something, I'm usually closer to 300 hertz, I feel like, muddy, woofy. Yeah, um, and that's more of a, a, I don't know, just depends. Narrow to mid, mid uh, size Q dipping. Uh, who knows? <laughs> I mean, it just depends on the song. Usually not a ton, yeah. but something. Yeah, uh, I normally like I normally divert like straight to my backs. Yeah, and it's like I'll do I'll do a cut until I can pretty much get a lot of that infrasonic jumbliness kind of roll it off and then I'll try to shelf um from where I'm actually like where you're having that main hit happen. Yeah. And that tends to clear things up. Um if I need a little bit more beef, I'm gonna go to like the Fab Filter Pro Q. Yeah. Um and I mean I'm gonna do a little bit of cutting in there as well. I mean I might even result Resort to like a little bit of multiband, not multiband, uh, dynamic EQ. Mm-hmm. If um, if it's like a little like crazy, kind of like up the up the spectrum, and I want to preserve some of the stuff that's up there, but uh, while kind of reducing in other areas. Yeah. So it gets. Uh, I mean, you end up having to process way more than you should. Right. I mean another another case too is sometimes I'll just boost. I I like boosting over cutting at the end of the day. Um I know I just talked about like filtering and cutting, but there'll be a lot of times where I'll A B and and just boost the top end to overpower the woofiness if I feel like if I feel like That's interesting. Excuse me. If I feel like um if I filter something or I cut something at three hundred or somewhere woofy and it feels like the whole mix fell apart but I still need to do something about it, then I'll boost top end to overpower. So basically you don't hear the woofiness anymore because <laughs> the top end is distracting your ear from it. So Yeah, something I've been recently doing, I know we were like, like this is like number one, so we're right. probably have to like power through just, a couple yeah, of these. Yeah, I was looking at a clock thinking. <laughs> but something that I've been doing recently is the Brainworks, uh, the XL V2. Yeah. Is that it? Or the V2 XL? Yep. Um, I've been using that Quite like regularly, uh, if a track needs rebalanced, yeah. Um, and I'm not, I'm not afraid to use that just to like make sure, like if something needs, like if something is being overpowered or if something needs like a little bit more oomph in certain areas. I mean, you can really dial that sucker in, absolutely, so that you can really accurately rebalance a track, yeah, that may be improperly balanced. So, okay, let's move on to your number two. Cool. Number two for me, uh, no order after this one or after number one. So number two, I notice a lot that vocals sound very thin and are sibilant or muddy. And I know like at the mastering stage, I don't have a whole lot of control over the vocal, but I am constantly getting mixes that the vocal feels super thin and scooped out. Um, and this really drastically impacts the final product because if something's thin and bright and sibilant in the vocal, it really limits what I can do with the top end. Now, there are definitely tricks of I can manipulate just side information. If the vocal's kind of mono, I can manipulate just mono information. I can automate stuff. I can do multiband. There's lots of tricks where I can push and pull that vocal in and out to make it really mm-hmm. fit in the, in the mix or the master better. <clears throat> But I notice a lot of times one of the main things I will report back to mixers who are like, what do you think of the mix? It's like, this was good, this was good, this was good, you know, but the vocal to me feels super thin or the vocal to me like has a big buildup in it and it's just sitting like way on top of the mix. And uh, that would be one of the main things. And I think part of it is I know you can like get 
a vocal that fits a mix by using cheap microphones like an SM7 or a 57 or a cheaper condenser or something. But at the end of the day, when I get projects from places that I know they used like a decent mic, like $1,000 or above, like a, U, like a U47 or a Manly or like a U47 clone, anything that's kind of that $1,000 and more price range with a decent preamp, the song instantly always sounds better. Even if the rest mm-hmm. of the instrumentation is so-so or the mix is so-so, <laughs> if that vocal is sitting really well and it's nice and thick and has character, the master always um, really supports that. And I try to urge my mixers or my mixers who are also engineers, it's like, I don't care if you skimp on everything else, but if you don't get the vocal right, it's really hard to make a song sound mm-hmm. good. Um so that would be my number two is spend the extra money to either invest into a vocal mic. If you're a mixer, I cannot say enough good things about having like a out-of-the-box vocal chain to reamp into, basically, if you're a mixer. Mm. If you don't buy any outboard gear and you want to stay all in the in the box, one of the first things I did when I started buying outboard gear for mixing was I wanted to have a killer vocal chain. And I have saved so many bad vocals to where the engineer is like, or the band's like, how did you get my vocal sound that good? It's like, well, I reamped it through, you know, a good preamp, a good compressor, and EQ. And then I didn't have to do like anything in the box with it pretty much because it's already done from out of the box. But I just, I would highly encourage like, make your next purchase if you don't have a good vocal chain in your mixer. Start investing in like some 500 series stuff, like 1500 bucks. You could have like a good preamp, a good compressor, a good EQ, and your vocals are going to sound so much better. Your mixes are going to sound instantly better because the vocal sounds better. Then your masters are really going to feel pro because that vocal's nice and thick and, and sitting where it needs to be. So that's my number two that I noticed the most. <clears throat> nice. What's my yours? number two is. Not sending a file in the native resolution that it was recorded in. Mm, that's a good so, one. So uh, I won't get into the whole sciency thing on it. Um, there's a, there's some really really solid videos on YouTube about um, <clears throat> resolution and like what people like believe is the best and whatnot. But in all honesty, if you're tracking in forty four one, I mean, don't send me something in ninety six. Yeah, because. Um, I mean, R, if, if anyone has RX, I mean, the best way to describe what it does, it just adds extra content. Like, when you upsample, like, it just adds extra material that's, like, not really relevant. And it just boosts the file size. So there's no real reason to do it because you're not gaining anything by it. Right. Um, by upping the bit rate, it can get a little weird. I mean, I don't, like, if you track in 16 and you send in 24... I mean, go for it, but like, if you if you can track in like ninety six twenty four, go ahead and do it. It's right. like, yeah, it's going to be like a massive like file and whatnot, like in a bear sending it back and forth. But I mean, it's going to be worth it to do that in the end. Um, but there, once again, there's some interesting videos on YouTube about, and it's like super controversial about like how you don't really ever need to go above forty eight twenty four. Yeah. And, like, the guy gives, like, specific examples and, like, mathematical reasoning behind why that is. But in general, don't, there's no need to track in, like, like 16-bit and then send me 32 float. Yeah. There's there's not a lot of reason for that. And most streaming places uh, only accept 44.1.16. Some do accept uh, 44.1.24. Yeah. Title Does Title accept 48? Yeah, they accept high res. Yeah. But so I mean, in terms of like Apple uh like mastered for iTunes, yeah. It's uh it's 44116. Uh yeah, I mean they're I think really lenient. They recommend 20 44124 or higher. Yeah. But I've had people turn in 44116 and still get it. It's the rules are very lenient. <laughs> <laughs> with yeah. Apple. It's all like suggestions in that manual they give you. 
So. Yeah, if anyone's looking at getting mastered for iTunes, the hardest part about it is finding where finding the email to ask for it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like some weird like bro brotherhood about it. So yeah. it's <laughs> it's stupid. It is. Um, but I get stupid. it. You get the badge, you're official. Yeah. So but yeah, just keeping it short, there's no need to up res. Um, I mean, unless you're tracking an 8 bit. <laughs> I mean, just like if you're tracking 44116, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Right. And just send those files and don't worry about it. It's it's perfect the way it is. Perfect. So that's my number two. Great. Let's see. Number three for me. Trace. Uh this one <laughs> over limited or over compressed mixes that get sent to me. And this isn't a um let's go back to the old days when we were more dynamic. This isn't a loudness mm-hmm. issue. Uh I know it's 2019. I know people mix into mixers and limiters. Uh I do that a lot of the time as well, depending on the content. It's a lot of the sound we hear on the radio is that. So this isn't a anti-mix chain or mix bus thing. But the main thing I want to bring this point up is I have a lot of clients that send their artists a heater mix or a reference mix that mm. they have just tossed a ozone preset or something on and they're taking 3 dB off and they think, well, that's not very much. And then I get the reference and I'm like, dude, this is absolutely slammed and your original mix sounds absolutely beautiful. But your yeah. reference you've been sending your artist actually sounds really crappy, essentially. Kind of sets the mastering engineer up for success. Right. And that's <laughs> usually what I say is like, well, if they love this, they're going to love what I do because like I yeah. can make this bigger, fuller, and better. But it's one of those things where you know the mixers always say like, yeah, I'm, I get this feedback from the mixers when we have this conversation <laughs> where they say, you know, yeah, I know, like, I don't want to have to do this, but the client's always a being to, like, stuff on Spotify or iTunes or whatever. I'm like, I get it. Like, you got to compete. But I really fight with all my mixers, and this is, like, a um, just a thing I try to encourage people is, like, we're responsible to educate people. And when you work with a mixer, like, all my mixers, I basically have told them with their clients to trust that mastering will take care of the loudness um, and the overall shape. And basically I tell them, you know, if you can get your client to trust you one time that, you know, you give them mixes at like a a proper mix level, basically where you feel good about your mix without then tossing on something to take 3 dB off and who knows what else is happening in a preset. If you can get them to just trust you that the mastering engineer will do that one time, every time the client, so say the mixer is like, okay, I'm just going to mix it how I want and, and let the level be what it is, and the client's like, okay, fine, I'll go along for this, then I get to master it, everyone is blown away. And it mm-hmm. only takes one time. That's all mm-hmm. it's taken for, for every mixer who's had a client who's finally like, just please trust me for one time. Like, let me just mix it. Don't worry about the loudness. Let's focus on, like, the balance, dynamic, and emotion. And let's let, you know, Sam make it as loud. Because I feel like, and this is something people don't understand, and I tell people this all the time, for me, making things loud is super easy. I can make things really loud beyond where anyone would want it and make it pretty stinking clean (laughs) and full. But that is just so not the goal of mastering to me. Mm-hmm. And so if I can get my mixer to educate their artist or client that mastering will take care of that, it's not an issue, then every time we've done that, their clients just stop caring about the loud, hyped, heated reference. Like it's no longer an issue cuz they know it's going to get taken care of. So that would be like my number 3 thing is mixers just mix, like focus on the balance dynamic train your client to know that mastering will actually take care of all loudness so they don't need to worry about that. And within that, it's like work with a mastering engineer who is willing, like sometimes when I have clients who are training their new clients in this way, like mixers who have new artists, I will do the mastering for free up front basically to have them earn that trust from the artist. Like once they have a version one, I'll master it. 
they can send it to the artist. The artist is like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it, that it's going to be taken care of. So that's something I just kind of do every once in a while when they have new clients who are really like skeptical about the mastering process. And the reality of the industry right now is we're in a place where you know, three years ago, people didn't care about it, but now that there's auto mastering and presets and everything, people have become very skeptical. So that's something I'm happy to do. But that's my number three: don't overcook your mixes. Let your mastering engineer take care of that. End of three. Yeah, I actually had something like that, um, and and I I almost <clears throat> I almost would just say like let your client turn it up on their end. Yeah, and it's like if they want to hear it loud, it's like don't do that for them. Right. Um, <laughs> there, there's a couple of mastering engineers I know that like when uh, when a mix engineer will send it to the client slammed, it's like, man, you're stealing my thunder. Quit doing that. <laughs> right. Um, which I always thought was a pretty funny way to say it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I completely understand what you're saying. And there's been some times when, say that I get a mix and it's like at minus five or minus four. Yeah. Like they're what what, what they've kind of been referencing, and it's like. I'm like this, there's no reason for this song to be that loud because right. like the bre- like it's like you're literally choking it out. Yeah. Um there's like no dynamics left and whatnot and um it's kind of ballsy to turn in a quieter master than the reference. Yep. Um I've done it and if if you ever on the edge about doing it, just give it a try and it's like if you lose the client, you lose the client, but it's like if it like if it genuinely sounds better and the person that's what they're listening for, then I mean, there's it's a, it's not really worth like not giving it a shot. Right. I mean, I've even like matched, I've even level matched the reference and just sent it back to the mix engineer and the client, and they're like, "Man, you can really hear like the growl and like the vocalist voice and stuff like that." It was a male voice, and I was able to like. With a little bit of saturation, uh, I was able to bring out like the air and the growl, like in his voice, and like how low it was. It was it was pretty cool, and it was, even though it was like level match, like you could just like there was so much more depth. So yeah. it's like if you're gonna go with a mastering engineer, just like just trust them. Yep. Um, my three is pretty quick. It is the whole pet peeve of let the mastering engineer fix it. Yes, and not worrying about it in the mix. Um, I might be stepping on my toes somewhere else down the line. That was one but, of mine too. Is is kind of that idea? But I'll let you talk. Yeah, about and that. I think I think we're gonna we're gonna start like going over each other's, and yes. it's like we'll just see where we end up on the list. I yeah. mean, there's no schedule here. Um, but to a degree, like when you say let the mastering engineer fix it, you're kind of setting them up for failure because you're sending them something that you weren't completely happy with. Yep. Um, and so by saying, I was never happy with X, Y, Z, um, why would you be happy with it when I send it back to you if you weren't happy when you sent it to me? Yep. So that you're not really setting any of us up for success. And it's almost like if, if I see that in a mastering checklist or if I hear that, um, there's a really good chance that I'm going to turn down the project because there's no way that I'm going to be able to make you happy if you're not happy with what you're sending me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, th- I think that's me keeping that short. Yeah. So that's a. I mean, that's pretty much. I have that exact thing on my list, and within oh, that, really? it's just. I kind of have like three that circle all around that that I could probably just knock out here, but. It's like poor expectations of what mastering can do. I can do a lot of things, but I can't fix timing of drums, BGV levels, guitar <laughs> levels. Like, I've had people tell me, like, "Hey, did you adjust that tambourine?" I'm like, "No, I can't do that." Like, I, <laughs> I mean, literally have two tracks. There, yeah. I mean, in left theory, right. there's a way of like, if I totally screwed left and right, and something was happening, latency. <laughs> but I've never had that happen. But there's a lot of times where I will master something. Well, not a lot anymore, but I would say when I started, where people would just hear things after giving it a break for a couple days, you know, like mm-hmm. they've exhausted the mix and now they finally took a break. And then they hear it and they're like, that's not in the mix. And I'm like, I go back to the mix. I'm like, it's right there. Like, yeah, here it is. Go back to your mix. They're like, oh, yeah, it is in the mix. And I'm like, okay, well, not a big deal. Let's fix it. But that's, yeah. I think, a lot of, 
I'll have people misunderstanding mastering and think, you know, they'll say something like, can you uh, lower the BGV or like the reverb's too big on that one delay throw? And that's something, you know, I have to say like, well, that's a mixed thing, so we'll need to open the mix back up or just, you know, that's not an issue. A lot of the times to me, and I think this is part of mastering, is, you know, we're supposed to sign off on stuff. And a lot of things that people are concerned about with feedback, I'm like, this is not a big deal. Like, I'm, yeah. I know, like, I'm here to serve the client, but I'm also here to help the client. I'll have, I have certain clients who literally tell me, like, you know, tell me if this is straight up crazy. Like, we don't have to fix this, but I feel like I'm hearing this. And I'll say, like, yeah, you're right. Or, no, this isn't anything. Like, you're, mm-hmm. you are hearing things, which is, that happens with listener fatigue. Um, so there's that. And then I get, the comment a lot of, you know, people want their mixes to be warm, big, thick, sound like analog. And mm-hmm. a lot of times I'll use that as like a coaching moment to be like, well, why don't you just do that in the mix? Like if you mm-hmm. want it to be warm, add some more low and in mid range or roll off top in. If you want it to be bigger and thumpier, boost your kick drum 2 dB. Like if you want it to be thicker, use some saturation or harmonics. And obviously I have tools that could probably do that better. So there's that exception. But there's too often where people, just like you're saying, Matt, they come into the mastering process with issues or things they don't like about the mix that the mixer either was like, you only get three revisions, too bad, or you know something like that. Um, to where kind of jacked up, yeah. Which is, you know, I've said this before. I've said it in a blog. I'm like mixers, get rid of your revision policy. Like I really believe in that. Um, because if you give them three revisions, guess what? They're going to use all three revisions. Exactly. They're going to use all three revisions. They're going to assume your mix is wrong every time. Like you'll never knock it out of the park. As yeah. soon as I got rid of my revision policy as a mixer and master engineer, the amount of times people would be like, this is great. We're done. It was like a 50% increase overnight of like people no longer just expecting it to be wrong or needing tweaked. And I found too when I I used to have a policy of three as a mixer, everybody would throw the whole freaking kitchen sink at it. Where it was like, I think I just used that phrase wrong. (laughs) What's the phrase? No, not really. Is that the phrase? Kitchen sink? Yeah. I heard that come out of my mouth. I'm like, kitchen sink. Um, But when they feel limited, they'll start being like round one revisions, like change bass, change kick, change the vocal. Can we try the synth and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, you've got a whole different mix. You know, and, yeah. and really what could have happened is like, oh, the bass just needed to come up or the vocal just needed to come down and then everything else is taken care of. So that's just a little side tangent. Like mixers get rid of revisions. And if your pushback is like, well, they're going to want like a thousand, then my my literal response to that is either you're not communicating with them well enough, like learning what they actually want and you haven't done your homework or, and this is something I needed to hear like Five years ago, you're just not that good yet. Like your mixes aren't great. So mm-hmm. that's the reason why you have 30 revisions. And if you're scared of that policy, like of having unlimited revisions, then get better or learn how to communicate better. And that is just my hard, tough love. I rarely do that, I feel like. But that was something that changed my life like five years ago. I had a guy who was just like, you're just not that good yet. And that's fine. Like that was the other thing. It was like, dot dot dot, and that's fine because you've only been mixing for a few years. Like, yeah, you said this in a previous episode. It's like you are where you should be, exactly. And it's like be okay with where you are. Right. It's like not everyone comes out of the box and like is good at what they do. Right. Exactly. So it's like it's okay to not be good at something. Right. Like you don't have to be an all star every time. Exactly. So that's it. So that's my little. Uh, <laughs> That little uh, tangent, and then, yeah, that's pretty much that was kind of like three of my points. So let's move on to your next <laughs> point you have and see if that lines up with mine. We're on four. Yes, mine is leaving no dynamic range slash headroom. Oh, that's good. Um, I have been moving more towards wanting dynamic range as opposed to headroom. There's some weird stuff though that some people will send me like <clears throat> I'll be like, "Hey, can I get and back when I cared more about headroom than dynamic range, 
Uh, I mean, if you send it at like zero zero, like on on the meter, and it's like digital zero is, <laughs> we have arrived. Uh, if it's there, I'm gonna be like, hey, can we like back this off, or like is a limiter on, or something like that? Normally through the waveform, just by looking at it, you can tell if a limiter's on. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've had somebody who ran it through like a board into a converter and like clipped the living trash out of the converter. And I was like, is there any way that, like, we can run... Like, I'm sure it sounds vibey as hell, but can we, like, back it down a little bit? Um, and, I mean, it just is what it is, and, it, I mean, it didn't work. And there's some things that you can do in mastering to kind of add some dynamics where they were not before, and that's kind of cool. Um, but in general, or at least not take away from them uh, yeah. as much as you would by using, like, regular methods... Um, that sounds so dark arty, and I don't like mean for it to sound like that. <laughs> but I mean, it's just like it's just crap you find out about, and you just learn and you figure out how to do it. Um, I now require more dynamic range than I do headroom, but I mean, in general, um, yeah, it's like don't don't make something like slam to minus seven or like louder. It's like there, 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 there's no need at that point. It's like at some point there's no like there's nothing i can do to really improve like what's going on if something's slammed it's like if you leave me 3 db of dynamic range it's like what am i gonna do right (laughs) (laughs) it's like it's like you kind of tied my hands when you handed this to me and i want to do anything i can to help yeah anything whatsoever um but, I mean, sometimes there are just some projects that you have to be like, I'm sorry, I can't do anything. Right. It's like on my end, I can literally turn a project down and I can make room, but I can't make headroom. Exactly. Or I'm sorry, I can't make, I can't like recreate dynamic range when right. it's like, when everything just kind of slammed. So, yep. um, I mean, you can always make it louder. You can always slam it harder, but it's like at what cost? And you can always build, uh, not necessarily actual dynamics, but you can build... Like the illusion of dynamics in there by essentially slamming something heavier into a limiter, like in chorus. Like if you want to like bump it up by 0.5 or a little bit more uh, during a chorus and automate that. I mean, you can do that, but you, once again, you're going to be shaving off uh, like some of that precious material that you need. Yeah. That's going to make the track make sense. So it's like. If you can leave dynamic range, which everyone can, um, please do. I'm also, this ties it back to number one in that uh, know that low end eats up a ton of dynamic range. Mm -hmm. And chances are, as through what I've seen, um, if your low end is unbalanced or uh, bumping or going crazy and it can even be like infrasonic stuff so like stuff down in like the way low like 40s 30s 20s and even into the teens that's like crazy and bumping that's like just kind of destroying your headroom Mm -hmm. so i mean nothing's wrong with like a little high pass on some stuff that doesn't need all the low end so i mean it's one of the it's one of the things that i utilize with the backs that I have, and I, I absolutely love it. it just kind of helps you build in a little, a little extra room. Um, so I don't know if I can have more dynamic range. The more, the better. Yeah. So I think you're the same, Sam. Absolutely. I think that's like the biggest myth that I see that always floats around the internet is people like, "Where should my mix be? What headroom should I leave for my master engineer?" And it's like we're having the wrong conversation. It's. <clears throat> Headroom is not an issue. I turn everything down like 15 dB to begin with and then rebuild from there. But it's the dynamic range that is important. And I think this to me is like a lot of people will be like, well, how do I figure that out? And I'm like, well, if you're asking that question, you need to do some homework. Like get a meter, learn where your mixes are falling, learn what dynamic range is and how that impacts your mixing and then how that impacts mastering. But that's one of the biggest questions I get asked all the time, what headroom should I send it? You know, I've got it at negative three right now, you know, peaking. I'm like, I don't care what's your RMS or, do you, you know, your dynamic range like. They're like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I'll also have, um, this has only happened a time or two, 
But people thinking that I want three to six dB of headroom, which it's like, sure, I'll take whatever I can get. Yeah. But just by the way things are reacting, you can tell that they built that in by limiting right. on their master bus. So, and they essentially set their output to minus three or to minus six. Yeah. And that's not the same thing. Exactly. You're crushing like beautiful dynamics into a limiter uh, before sending it to mastering, and it doesn't sound better because it's sent into a limiter. Right. It's like just please turn things down. Um, so yeah, please please do not do that. Yep. But I mean, people getting creative, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number five. Unless you have something else. Uh, I think we've done like seven of mine actually. So I have a few <laughs> others. But that's about it. So, all right, I can tee one up if you want, or if I mean, I mean, let's just, uh, I mean, whatever is like the next most logical step for your list. (laughs) I don't know if there is. I I can go though. I'm gonna go. Go Um, This is something that I think is highly overrated: mastering shootouts. And this, to me is something that's becoming more and more popular where I will have someone be like, hey, we're shopping around for mastering engineers. We don't know who we're going to use yet, but would you be willing to do like a sample master so we could compare it to these three other guys who have all agreed to do sample masters? So then it's you against four guys who you don't know what they're doing. kind of chummy. It's a little chummy to me. But my main issue with shopping around for master engineers to me tells me you don't know what you want and you don't understand mastering and what people offer. That is the main thing I hear being screamed to me is I don't know what I want and part of that may be because I don't understand mastering. The other side of it for people is like they've had such poor experiences with mastering that they've blown massive amounts of money hiring someone who's super high end getting a terrible product back or it's just distorted to hell and then they're like we have no budget so we're not going to do that again we have to test everyone every time now because there's no quality control guarantee so Mm -hmm. I don't like fault people with that but I really whenever anytime someone wants me to do a shootout um, I usually try to start engaging them right then of like well what are you looking for you know, in the Mm -hmm. shootout and what, like, I'm not going to do the shootout unless you can tell me exactly what you're looking for that I would win the shootout, basically. And if they can't tell me that... You're just setting yourself up for success. Yeah, if if they can't tell me what they're looking for, then I won't do it. And I'll just say I'm not willing to compete. But I also have told people, like, this is unfair to mastering engineers to me of, like, Having me shoot out against like you against someone else is kind of like this pinning us against each other as a competition. Mm. And I just, I don't really believe in that with music. Like, I don't think it should be a competition. And I think when you stack masters next to each other, it's like I said, like people pick the one they like, you know, and there's like a quote unquote winner. And when people are like, you won, you beat out so-and-so, I'm like, that's great. But that doesn't mean but that doesn't that, mean it's, that's better. Exactly. And so I, I will always tell people if they tell me I won, I try to make them understand, like, you know, it doesn't mean I'm a better mastering engineer. It may, be, may mean I'm the better fit for the project or I understood yes. what you wanted better. But I really try to defend all my mastering engineers unless there's someone who's just doing absolutely terrible work and just like distorting the hell out of things that I'm like, let me steer you away from that and recommend 10 other people. So that's one of the main things. It's becoming more popular. I wish it would stop. Um, and that leads into, I'm just going to go into another one and then pretty much you could probably do the rest of your list and I'll just shut up. <laughs> but I have a big... I like hearing you talk. Okay, great. Um this leads into like find a master engineer and work with them for lots of years. Um, there's a direct quality increase I've noticed with clients who stick with me that as we get to learn how each other works and as they learn what I do and I learn how they mix, over time we just naturally get a better end product because they know how I work, I know how they work, everything's smooth, it's like a well-oiled machine. And at you know, after a few years of working with a mixer, it is a seamless process. 
that yes. we always get an amazing product. And I have a, a few clients, not so much anymore, but early on in my career, I'd have people just come and go and come and go, and they're always shopping around, and they're always looking for the cheaper, the better deal, or the eight for, you know, do nine, get one free, or like all of that when you start working with like 10 different master engineers, and I know this kind of pushbacks to what I just talked about, like finding the right fit, but when you start kind of using all these different engineers for different projects, the quality control is really hard to do, consistency is hard to do, and you as a mixer, you're not able to really use your master engineer to get better. And that's a, that's a big thing I think mixers don't realize is if you start working with a mastering engineer consistently for years and years, you will literally become a better mixer by default because hopefully the master engineer is helping you, you know, shape your mixes better, the things that keep coming up. Like with some of my engineers who I'm like, hey, your low end is always just like non-existent. The next mix, like put a shelf in. Like right at the end, if it if it sounds like good in your room, and you don't want to even like have that extra boost until the end, I'm like just try it. Just put like a a two dB shelf when you're done with your mix, and like send that to me. And every time it's you know it's a better thing, and now they've gotten confidence of like yeah I can add some more low into it, and it's gonna sound bigger and fuller and richer, and you know I can take care of it on my end, but. That's kind of the the other thing within this these kind of two points is find a master engineer you, you like. If they do a good job, work with them again and again and again and build up that trust and that relationship with them. And after a few years, like you're going to just be putting out a terrific end product and it's going to be super quick, super fast. And um, it's just a beautiful thing when you have people on your team that you can trust. And I feel like that's a often neglected thing, um, as there are a lot of choices and budgets change. But the people that continually work with me over the years, I know they are super loyal, and they could attest to like the value that I've brought them, and also them. Obviously, bringing me projects is wonderful, but it's you got to find someone you like and and try to stick with them for a while. Otherwise, you may never really like tap into the potential of someone long term. So that's my little other point. So Matt, go ahead. <clears throat> um, so my five, I kind of touched on it. The whole uh, leaving a final limiter on the mix. Um, I would just prefer all final limiting off. I don't really care about final compression so long as stuff is not like inappropriately per the genre, like pumping and just like slamming, like if you're slamming dynamics and it's like not really um, acoustically and sonically appropriate, then it's like I might ask for a version with and without and then, I mean, just play with the one that's not compressed. Mm -hmm. But in terms of limiting, um, I mean, I will turn down mixes if it's like kind of, if I know it's going to be hitting my chain hard. I mean, that's just common sense. It's like there's a certain range that, of signal that like I know my chain is going to perform best in so I'm going to set up my chain for success and sometimes that requires turning a mix down and I mean unlike say mixing front of house if you turn a mix down you kind of ruin the mix that was made well it's like in this realm that's not necessarily the case so um, yeah I don't like final limiters on mixes Um, it's just kind of unnecessary Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of where I am. Um, you didn't want to go at all, or you you kind of wrapped? I have like one more little thing, and then I'm done. Okay, I'll power through mine. Okay. I, I think we've been recording for a handful of minutes. Uh, my six is, uh, I think you might have touched on this, thinking that mastering can fix your tambourine, guitar tone, <laughs> uh, drum timing, etc. We have two tracks left and right, and I can do some little magic and do mid-side. I've seen a lot more mix engineers playing with mid-side. Yes. I'm not sure what other mastering people think about that. I'm not, <laughs> I don't think I have an opinion currently. Yeah. Um, it's very dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be like, I, I think it's cool to be creative and to use like, all the things that you can in order to like, be that creative... Uh, person and serve the music 
just be very careful with mid side. You can really destroy stuff. Right. Um, well, and basically mid side, like you're just adjusting the mono and stereo. So you're essentially adjusting things that are centered or panned. And I always tell mixers, like, just turn up your panned instruments. Like, don't. Yeah. If you want something wider, that's kind of, you know, that's how you do it. Just bump your wide guitars a dB hot, hotter. Yeah, but then... that's not it. It's that the word mid-side sounds sexy. I know. And it's like mysterious and it's like stuff that people don't mess around with. Right. And so they go in there and it's like, it, it, it's like, yeah, I completely agree with you. Like, adjust your panned instruments. But it's like, just know if you mess with mid-side, you can really mess with the overall balance. Right. Um, so feel free to play around. Just be very careful because it's very easy to throw some stuff out of phase. And if I have some, like, really phasey stuff, I'm like, hey, man, I can't, like, I can't do anything with this. It's like there's there's just certain limitations that we have. Right. And it's like, unless this was your artistic intent... I mean, okay, um, just know there's, like, limitations to, like, what I'm going to be able to do. Right. Um, and then that goes into my number seven, making a mix too wide. I mean, I can I can necessarily, I can narrow a mix, but it's not like, it's like I'd rather that be done in the mixing stage as opposed to the mastering stage. Yeah. It's a lot easier to make something narrow, or it's a lot easy to, like, uh... What do I want to say? It's a lot easier to control those parameters in the mix stage than it is the mastering stage. And I would just say, like, when it comes to, like, the really far-out widening, I would just let a mastering engineer do that. Um, I mean, you might have a different thought on that, Sam, but in terms of making stuff, like, wide and, like, massive and full, I mean, I would just leave it to the person, you know, that's going to do a really good job with it. Right, yeah. So... Could just be me. Um, I already said the whole setting an Emmy up for failure. Um, it's like you'll never be happy like with what you get back. Um, number nine for me is not expressing expectations. So, I mean, this could also be lost in translation. So, like, if you have a revision and you're like, hey, this feels a little scooped. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, what does scooped mean? And it's like to most people it means like kind of scooped out in the low mids. And it can even go into like the mids. That's at least what I take it as. Yeah. Um, but it's like that could mean something completely different to somebody else. Um, so it's like being lost in translation, though, is a little bit different than not expressing your expectations. Um, it's like if you have, like, you want it to sound like X, Y, or Z, or you want it to, like, you just, like, you don't want it really wide. You want it, like, pretty narrow, like, straight up the straight up the middle or you don't want it crazy loud like you do want like a really like dynamic master then make sure that's known because if someone hands you back something and it's pretty darn loud I mean you can't be mad at something at an expectation that was just like not expressed yeah so that's where I am on that you want to go into your last one my last one is just a education one it's not really a uh, it's not an issue but it's something that comes up a lot is people will ask me about codes and metadata mm-hmm. and I will embed those into the tracks and stuff and then people will be like, where are the codes at? I can't find them. And the answer is they're codes and they're metadata and you're not supposed to find them <laughs> unless you have a DAW, mastering DAW that can read them. They're hidden for a reason. Um, and that's just one of those things where like I'll send a PQ sheet or something that shows the contents of the tracks, you know, for full lengths and stuff, which is what will be in the physicals. But mm. that's one of the things that comes up every, probably almost every week where people are like, I need the codes, you know, I want to track this, you know, for radio broadcast or whatever. And and I put it in and then they're like, where is it? And I'm like, well, it's hidden. So I'll take screenshots and send it over to them to show it's there. But that's one of those like misconceptions or just uneducation things where codes and metadata are pretty much hidden and you're not supposed to find them, which is great because otherwise people could change them or embed different information into them. So yeah. that's that's my last little point that comes up way more often than I ever thought it would. But your codes are there. 
trust your mastering engineer. You know. Yeah, I normally, I normally will include a PQ sheet when I deliver as well. So, so there's no like confusion and whatnot. And I mean, in general, when I deliver a DDP player as well, um, that player will show the code, right? And that is embedded. So. I haven't I haven't necessarily run into that. I've actually run into it with like UPC codes, mm-hmm. and it's like that. That's where I more run into that. And I was like, all right, well, whatever. And I just I just include the paperwork and stuff with it with it. So yeah. Um, my number ten is um, it's kind of weird, and I'm flexible on this, but this is kind of the extreme for me. It's the whole like making three versions of mix edits post mastering. Yeah. Like, because there was something wrong with the mix. And it's like, that's not my fault. And it's, like, I, I don't mind, like, you going back in, like, after the after the first version of the master was sent and being like, hey, man, I completely missed something. Can I pull this down and just, like, you rerun it? And it's kind of a, a pain in the butt with gear. Right. Especially if, like, you're working on, like, other things and it's, like, taking them a while to get back. So, like, recall can be a little bit interesting if you're not taking notes. Um, but it's, like, for, like, one thing, it's, like, yeah, sure, whatever. And <clears throat> it's, like, don't send me something with another part because that's going to be – I'm going to charge you for that. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a new song at some point or that's, like, a new version of the bridge. Um, but it's, like, I don't, I don't mind one. Or it's, like, hey, man, I accidentally, like, left this muted. I, I recently had this happen. It was, like, the last 10 seconds – there was like some ceramic chime or something like that that was supposed to happen in like the last 10 seconds of a song. It's like, hey, when this was sent, um, they, like that track was muted. Like, would you mind if I did this? And it's like, it was a really quick thing, like one revision, no problem. And I, I don't mind that. But let's like, when you send me like, it was like we're on V2 and V3 and you're sending me new mixes and it's like half the EP or LP, it's like, this is getting a touch excessive. Right. And it's like, at some point, you just kind of have to let the art be art. And imperfect art is still perfect art. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... I mean, chances are people aren't even going to realize that, like, X was too loud or whatever. So, I don't know. That's kind of... That's kind of my thing about like, hey, we like really need to have a conversation because I'm about to like charge you for like these new masters essentially. Right. Yeah. So No, I agree I with know. that. I, yeah. I run into I run into that. I mean, I try to make it very clear to people that what you send me is, you know, the final. And if we do have to change something like drastically, it's a you repay. So I had that early on. A lot of people would get the master back and be like, oh, the synth needs change, and I'm going to change kick drum and then the BGVs, and I'm like, well... That's a new master. That's a new master. <laughs> like, Yeah. You know, it's... And the other thing within that, too, is... I don't know when this happened, but most of my clients, the artist pays me, not the mixer, but the mixer has become, like, the gatekeeper of the master for a lot of things, where, like, the mixer has the final say on the master. Hmm. And... I think that should be reversed to where like your yeah. mix work is done, Weird. you've been paid, compensated. I do value your opinion, but now it's time for me to master it and do my expertise, you know. Yeah. Um I've noticed that a lot the last couple of years. And I think it's a direct result of mixers having access to faux mastering things where they begin to talk about mastering to me about how I should be mastering things. And it's like, well, you hired me to do my thing, so I'm going to do my thing. Otherwise, you can master it. You know, is essentially the conversation. I mean, even if like the client is like included on the email, I mean, after you're paid, it's like that person casting doubt into the project. Right. It's terrible. It's toxic. It's like, dude, your job is over. Right. And chances are, you're probably paid by now. Right. And that's so. It's like that happens chill. more often than not, where the mixer will, will chime in something negative before the client has even heard the master. And so that's been something I've really worked on is like, let's get the client's feedback first. If the client says it's great and they're thrilled with it, then we're done. You know, (laughs) like we're not going to open the mix back up 
just because you feel like you want to change something now. Like your mix is final, they signed off on it, and now I did my job and they love it. And the artist is paying me, not you, the mixer, most of the time. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that's been interesting in the last couple of years. I've noticed that it's happening more and more where like this power has shifted to like must make the mixer happy or like the song doesn't get wrapped. But I think I very much believe in like the stages of music and once your role is done, like you need to hand it off and let it go. And when you do that, the projects get wrapped faster, the clients are happier because they're never redoubting the mix. If you open the mix back up, then people start doubting parts and arrangement, then you're in production, and then people are like, well, maybe we need to recut something. It's like, we're at the mastering stage. Why are we recutting acoustic guitars? I literally yeah. had that happen last week with a client. I had that happen last year. Someone's like, oh, I want to add a guitar part. Yeah. And it's like, Where they uh, were like, the guitar sound. <laughs> this is little, already mastered. Yeah. They were like, guitars sound a little too noisy. Let's recut acoustic guitars. And I'm like, we're at the mastering stage. Yeah. Like, how did this not come up at the mix stage? So, yeah. Anyway, that's a little side tangent. But I think the main point of that tangent is like, everyone needs to trust everyone. Like, yeah. And, and I know sometimes people goof up and I know there's bad experiences, but I found more often that I can trust people way more than. Like be skeptical about everybody who's ever working on the project. So mm-hmm. I always like to try and trust people and Same. then educate my mixers to trust me that I've heard way more mixes than they will ever work on in their lifetime. So mm-hmm. trust me when I tell you like your mix is good, it's good. <laughs> I'm not like bullcrapping you or trying to just wrap a project fast. Well, yeah, I mean, if the mastering engineer says like, Hey, this is perfect. Right. Like, don't do anything. Don't change anything. Right. And then someone comes back and says, "Well, no." It's like, "Well, this isn't your opinion anymore." Right. It's like I'm the guy. I'm the yeah. last say. I yeah. am. I am the head of quality control here at this point. Right. That's what you're paying me for. Yeah. So. Yes. Yeah. I don't want well, that cool. to sound too bossy or extreme, but <clears throat> that's just to me the reality. At the end of the day, is the mixers who trust me to master. And they just really have let go. A, they're way more happier. B, we wrap projects yes. way faster. C, the clients are just always pumped, like way quicker. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the goal is make the client happy. So that's it. That's it. That's all I have for today. That's it, man. Cool, man. Well, thanks for another great podcast. Oh, of course. Thank you for being a part yeah. of it. <laughs> I like how I like how unscripted but yet scripted this is. Yeah. Um, I like how, like, the most fascinating part of this whole show was that you made a list and I made a list and how similar our lists were. Yeah, and I like so. that a lot because obviously I've been doing this a lot longer than you, so mm-hmm. it's kind of nice to know, like, you've been in this for a couple of years that you have the exact same issues I do, and it seems to be a universal thing regardless of if you're on indie or label work. It's an overarching kind of thing. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, man. And like we said in the beginning, like none of this stuff is meant to be taken personally. Correct. Like none of it's meant to like none of come this down is on anybody. <laughs> yeah, none of this is passive aggressive. None, none of us are like, oh well I hope so and so's listening. Absolutely not. It's like like none of this was said with like any type of malintent or anything. But people will ask us like what can we do better? What can we do different? And we just literally made an episode of 20 things that can be done different. Right. So, yeah, it's like, I don't know, just trying to answer some questions here. Exactly. People are like, what can I do different? It's like, well, check out episode 36. (laughs) Exactly. There you go. (laughs) I don't know what episode this will be. I don't either. So, well, cool. Uh, Yeah, Sam, you're awesome to do podcasts with. Thank you. And life. (laughs) You're a good dude. You're a good mastering engineer. Appreciate that. Uh, yeah, this is this is good stuff. Yeah, that's great. So cool. If you like what we're saying, give us a like or comment or something on iTunes wherever you're listening to. If you don't like what we're saying, shoot us an email and tell us why, and we would love to uh, engage with you and figure out like how we can do stuff different or like better cater to you because this is. Your podcast. This isn't for us. So, yeah. 
And always, whatever you're having, morning, afternoon, evening, <laughs> have a darn good one. Sam, you got the music all set up? Cued, all ready. Rolling, all cueing. Not cued yet. <laughs> you know it's fading in. I know it's fading in. <laughs> it's inevitable. <laughs> Cue the music, Sam. Cueing, goodbye. Y'all have a good one. See you in the next episode.